This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and today our topic is dignity. We're going to talk about the image of God and the importance of human beings and the way in which they're treated. And our guest is Mel Lorenz, who uh, I have known for a long time on the basis of uh, visits I used to make up to Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So we've got north and south together today. We're just doing really well. Mel, welcome to the table. Thank you, Daryl. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, Mel, talk about kind of uh, – you You have a kind of an independent ministry now that Elmbrook helps to sponsor. Talk a little bit about what you have done and do in ministry and, and why you wrote a book on dignity. Well, after about 30 years of pastoral ministry uh, here at Elmbrook in different capacities, um, uh, the last 10 years as senior pastor, I took on a, a role of teaching and training and networking, uh, developing our partnerships. So I feel as though I'm taking 30 years of experiences and learnings and bruises um, and a few insights along the way and getting to share them uh, with Christian leaders, church-based leaders and other leaders um, really all around the world. We do uh, a lot of networking stuff. I do uh, training overseas. Um, we have a program in the church where we bring international leaders here uh, once a year and then do networking outside of that. I write a lot of books along the way and uh, just look for any opportunity to pass on to uh, other cultures and other generations whatever we have learned here in our ministry at Elmbrook. So it's a combination, I take it, a focus on developing leadership on the one hand, and it, it sounds like with the Dignity book you're doing a little bit of, uh, if I can say this, it, it may not be directly related, but tangentially related, almost to a theology of work and getting people to think about why God has them where they are. Well, um, the, the rubric that I work under, Daryl, is called the Brook Network, and there's a little verse in Proverbs 18.4 that says, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And I feel as though I've been on a lifelong search for wisdom. Wherever I go, whoever I visit, whatever group I'm working with, I'm looking for where can I find something of God's higher wisdom here and then share that. So that's really, you know, the dignity thing, um, it's, it's a seminal idea. Mm -hmm. It's a big ideal. I think culturally it's a major, major watershed um, ideal, which a lot of people are willing to give up on. And so the work that I do with great pleasure is to um, be a catalyst for people to talk about some really big ideas. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, – you talked about it kind of generically, but let's talk about the book. The book is entitled A Time for Dignity, Crisis, and Gospel Today by Mel Lorenz, and uh, it's uh, – the, the beauty of it in some ways is it's, it not only dives into the concept, but it's so crisply done, and um, 
and concise. It's very manage. It's very manageable read for somebody. And so uh, let let's start first with what in the world gave you the idea to write the book. You talk about your experiences in India at the start. Um, uh, what what drove you to think about writing on on a time for dignity? Uh, I was teaching uh, some Christian leaders in India, and um, this ministry also was reaching out to the lower caste, the so-called Dalits. They were developing a mission statement when I was there, wanted me to be a part of the discussion. And they, they were playing with the concept of we exist in order to give dignity to the Dalits, and um, we got involved in an incredible engaging conversation in which I offered, you know, you got to be careful about talking about giving dignity to anybody, because if you can give it, you can take it away. Mm-hmm. We don't give dignity. We recognize it. We affirm it. Um, but but what struck me, Daryl, is dignity is such a powerful ideal. And I hadn't heard a Christian ministry bring it centrally mm-hmm. into their concept as a ministry. But then I ran into ministries in Central America and uh, in Asia, and they were doing the same kind of thing. That launched me into doing uh, a couple years research, and I plunged into the secular literature. I looked for Christian literature on dignity, and bottom line, here's what I found, is that Dignity is a nearly universally held concept. It certainly has been in Christian circles, although there's very different ideas as to what it is. And for a lot of people, it's very fuzzy. It's kind of a generic ideal. But I was very enthused to, I think, discover that there's some very concrete things you can get to. And I I think it's a great way to express the gospel today. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more, uh, and, and hopefully in the midst of the podcast that it will become transparent. Now, you've not only um, you know, pastored and done leadership training, but you've taught as well. Um, I, I see here on the back of, of the book that you are, have been an adjunct faculty member uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and at Trinity International University. So, so you're used to taking these kinds of concepts and and presenting them in a context where you get people uh, thinking about kind of how they think about the way they view the world. So this pursuit of wisdom has transferred itself into the classroom as well. Is that right? Yes. Um, when I was finishing my MDiv at Trinity uh, in my last elective classes, I, I gravitated toward history classes, church history, historical theology, and much to my surprise, I was fascinated with it. So I started my pastoral ministry when I was 25 years old here at Elmbrook. That was 35 years ago now, 36 years ago. Um, And I always had a very strong conviction about um, history and historic ideas, ideals, historical theology. So when I stumbled into something like dignity and start digging, I'm looking for the history of it. Um, And you'd think that we know these things, that they're on the table, but there are still things like dignity and the gospel that I think are, are new minds that we can open up. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, uh, the, what, what sometimes is called the creation mandate in Genesis 1 and 2 is not 
deeply enough appreciated for what it says about humanity. We get all locked up in the debates about the historicity of those chapters and the genre of those chapters and sometimes miss the theology that's coming out of them uh, to our great loss. So obviously if we're talking about dignity, we're rooting the idea in in part in the association with the idea that, that men and women are made in the image of God, that we're made in the image of God, and that this is where uh, dignity comes from. But on the other hand, and the, your book opens making this point, uh, uh, dignity is something that if you use it in the public square is seen in a variety of ways. There are a lot of options for the way dignity is presented. So let's kind of work through that to start off with. What are, what are the ways people use the concept of dignity in distinction from the way perhaps Christians think about it as, as being related to the image of God? Great. That's my entree for the history lesson, but I'll keep it brief, I <laughs> okay. promise. Okay. Um, so, um, dignitas, Latin means worth or worthiness, and in classical society, that had to do with social status. Mm-hmm. If you're born into an upper class, good for you. If not, tough luck. Either you have dignity by the luck of the draw or not. Then there's a concept of dignity that relates to behavior, a mm-hmm. person who comports themselves with dignity, respectability. And though we would all love for all of us to behave with more dignity, that's not the core of the concept. Then you have the biblical concept, which you identified, inherent worth, uh, dignity as a worth that is inherent because of God's will, God's decision to create in His image. It's unalterable, although it can be denied and stomped on by others, and that's why we need to step up to the plate. But then, in more recent times, Daryl, the the tragedy is the modern concept of dignity as simply autonomy. Dignity is, you let me do whatever I want to do, and therefore you're showing me dignity. That's an empty concept. It's essentially, um, you know, it's essentially relative. It doesn't have any connection with the historical idea of dignity. Um, But that is where things sit, including Supreme Court uh, judgments, which when they use dignity, they're largely using it as autonomy. Hmm. Uh, It's it's interesting because really, if you think about it, it if I can say it this way, it is a little bit of a natural place to land if you pull the idea of divine design, et cetera, out of the equation. I mean, if you if you move to a more secularized way of thinking about things and think about who we are as you know, you're asking basic questions about who we are as human beings and how we should regard one another. We either um, attribute dignity to something that otherwise doesn't have merit, or we recognize that inherently human beings have dignity and uh, are worthy of in- inherently worthy of respect. So it's it's a it's a huge difference in the use of the term of the uh, in the use of the term and the and the conceptualizing of it. Yeah, um, but there's an opportunity there too. Right. Because most people, I mean, there are some people that say, just give up on the concept. And in the book, I talk about people like uh, bioethicist Ruth Macklin, who wrote um, Dignity is a Useless Concept, psychologists uh, from Harvard, Steven Pinker, who said Dignity, the stupidity of dignity. There are people that are saying, just give it up because it's a metaphysical, quasi-religious belief, and we know we don't want to go down that road. Apart from that, though, most people 
believe that in some sense of worth, in some sense of dignity, at least as an ideal. And so there's a bridge opportunity there, I think, for evangelism. Most people think about evangelical Christians as biased and closed-minded and belligerent and so on, and not people who respect, who treat others with dignity and respect. So if we can turn that around, there's, there's a wonderful opportunity there. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely uh, agree with that observation. And let, let's turn our attention now to, to the biblical concept of dignity, and let's talk a little bit about Genesis 1. Obviously, the idea of being made in the image and likeness of God is the s- starting point for this kind of a discussion. I think uh, of a psalm like Psalm 8, where the psalmist praises God from having made us just a little lower than the angels, that kind of idea. Uh, and and so uh, the idea of uh, every person being being a reflection to some degree of God is an important concept, but there's a lot of discussion about what image of God means. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I, I thought you broke this down pretty nicely. So, um, so okay, what is what does the image of God mean? And, and just as kind of a fun introduction into this, I tell people when I talk about this concept that you don't hear about the First Baptist Church of Porpoises or the First Presbyterian Church of Bears or uh, the First Methodist Church of Butterflies, that there's a distinction in how we've been made in the creation vis-a-vis other creatures. Uh, what makes us different? Well, um, Historically, um, people have explored that. You know, the interesting thing about Genesis 1 is that it doesn't explicitly tell us what is meant by image of God. It's tantalizing in that there's the strong affirmation made in the image, made in the likeness, but then we're left to figure out what that may mean. And so one historic uh, approach is to say, well, what, what is unique about humanness? And it is things like spirituality, because you won't find your dog or cat uh, praying in the early morning hours when you when you go downstairs, no, you I won't can find... definitely tr- tr- attest to the fact that they, <laughs> I'm not worshipped by my dog or my cat. <laughs> <laughs> you won't you won't go out in the woods and find that the uh, that the animals have crafted some kind of a primitive shrine. They don't have spirituality. They don't have rationality uh, in in the same way, in the same sense of self awareness. They don't have morality. Of course, C.S. Lewis thought that morality is the perhaps the strongest argument for the existence of God. Maybe even creativity. Uh, we don't create the way God creates, but uh, I noticed the robins in my backyard this spring are building their nest in exactly the same way they always do, mm-hmm. whereas you or I could sit down with a piece of paper and draw a design of a house that nobody has ever imagined. So. A historic way of understanding image of God is to say what's unique about humanness. Um, Dr. John Kilner um, picked up my book and was very affirming, but but also very helpful just as I was finishing it. His book called Dignity and Destiny, mm-hmm. uh, published by Erdman's just last year, uh, I think Christianity Today Book of the Year in, in, in its category. Um, Dr. Kilner is very strong on saying, um, let's be very Christological about this. We know in the New Testament, Christ is the image of God. And so the image that we are created in, um, really what we find in Christ is the ideal to which we are being constructed. And he feels very strongly, let's not ever talk about the image being broken or lost. Um, Sin certainly has broken us, 
but um, the image, the ideal of God-likeness is, is still there. What's in common with all of this is that um, our worth consists in God by his own choice and by his amazing creative act, creating a race uh, of people that have dignity and that can't be taken away even because of sin. Yeah, and, and, and of course, if you think about the new man imagery that you get in a text like Colossians 3, just to piggyback on what you were saying about what Dr. Kilner was saying, is, um, is there are, there's a character that's involved in this that's important, certain attributes and characteristics of, of relating that yeah. are very, very central to what it means to be a Christian, to put on the new man versus uh, the old clothes of the old man, that kind of thing, that are designed to image. In fact, we're being conformed. One of the passages you mentioned is Romans 8. We're, we're, we're being conformed to the image of his beloved son, which itself is a reflection of, of who God is. And so um, these, these passages come together in emphasizing this ability to relate to one another well and to relate to God well, which of course also goes back to Genesis 1 because in the in the creation mandate, uh, the assignment, should you choose to accept it, uh, is, uh, is an assignment about uh, managing and stewarding the creation which God has put us in a, in a healthy way, in a, in a way that takes good care of the garden, if you want to use a picture to talk about it. And, and so I have assumed by just reading Genesis 1 in context that the idea of being imaged in the, in the reflection of God is, helps us to accomplish that task. Yeah, yeah. Um, whatever it is, it's, it's really, really important. And, and now I as a pastor, uh, I reflect back on everything that I've experienced and everything I experienced today where people suffer the indignities of life. And this is a whole other angle on this, Daryl, that was eye-opening to me, is that dignity can be sometimes talked about theoretically or as mm -hmm. an ideal, or sometimes applied in a very limited way, like with pro-life issues, bioethics. Mm -hmm. It's so much more than that. And one of the ways that we know that is when we say, how, are th how do people experience the negation of dignity or the denial of dignity, mm -hmm. the indignities of life. Right. I did a survey in our congregation, and as you might imagine, the responses were all over the place. But maybe we can get into this more, things like aging and illness, right. anything that takes away our sense of worth uh, gives us an indignity. And so this is a eminently practical concept as well as a high ideal. Yeah, I, I know that. I mean, you do have a chapter in which you go through, really, uh, the best I could tell, four categories. Uh, one is abuse. Uh, the other is the issue of aging, how aging can take away our dignity, how illness can take away our dignity in one way or another. And then and then one that well, I thought was a curveball, it wasn't one I was expecting, bureaucracy. Uh, the, way, the way in which we interact and manage each other is really what you're talking about. The way in which we engage in our work and the way we pursue it. So, uh, so those are the indignities that, that, that you raise. And I think inherently people get the abuse one. 
I think through the experience of life, sometimes they experience the age one. Illness is certainly one that you see people in hospitals sometimes wrestle with because of what they are and are not able to do for themselves as a result of being ill or sometimes uh, um, not just ill, but how can I say, um, uh, in a a context of an accident or something like that. Um, And then, like I say, the surprise one, the bureaucracy one, it's an interesting list and it and it does cover a wide range of life. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned at the end of that chapter, here's four, but here's eight others. Uh-huh. Uh, the criminal justice system, um, unemployment, you know, it goes on and on. And this is what's really struck me, Daryl, is though we believe that nobody can take away our dignity, um, people can stomp on our dignity mm-hmm. or the circumstances of life. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're suddenly disabled and you say, I do not feel as worth I don't feel as though I'm worth as much as I used to be. That's a major issue. But that's where the gospel comes in, where Christian faith asserts for people who are suffering, people who are unemployed, uh, people who are getting older. You know, I got some gray in my hair. I see you do, too. Yep. Um, do we have to go to Asia to be respected, Daryl? <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be. Uh, it's a long trip. Uh, it, yeah, you're right. It, it, it isn't, you know, it, the way in which people just view age is one example, is an interesting uh, interesting thing. You know, as I get older, I, I relate to commercials uh, differently because when I look at them, I go, those folks are all younger than I am, except for the the ones that come with the long disclaimers that go with them that say, you know, you take this medicine, you may die. Um, and, and so uh, we we do uh, almost uh, worship youth in a way that that ends up uh, leaving older people in an undignified position if we're not careful. We we really do. We really do. People in their eighties, you know, will will say, you know, it's very, very common for people to treat you as um, um, as irrelevant. You don't have anything to say anymore. Now, that's going to be a problem because in the world, the population of people 60 and older is going to get dramatically higher. If we put people on the shelves, if we feel as though, if we treat them as if they have no worth, it's, it's going to hurt everybody. And theologically, it's wrong. Yeah. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Well, there's one other concept I want to kind of sneak in before we hit the break here. we got a couple of minutes left, and that's uh, the idea of being bent. You said we shouldn't talk about the image of God being damaged or anything like that, but the idea that we're bent uh, coming from C.S. Lewis is, is a way of thinking about this. And I tend to think about the fallen life as life with a lot of static in it that ends up taking you off 
uh, off direction. Uh, is is that a better way to think about that concept? Better than C.S. Lewis? Well, no, better than C.S. Lewis, <laughs> but a way of thinking about it, a way of, of articulating rather than ha- having thought about something being damaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 think, I think you're right, Daryl. Um, we need to help people understand sin and depravity as something other than a foreign contagion. Mm-hmm. Because um, then it's like, okay, I've got a germ in my body. I need need to get rid of it. Um, theologically and biblically, of course, we know that that sin essentially consists in the corruption of every part of our being and every one of our faculties. So um, that gives us an opportunity to um, uh, to help people to realize you can get back from that because you can unbend something that's bent. At the end of your book, Mel, you go through eight kind of uh, ways in which uh, dignity applies, uh, that believers can follow the mandate of the gospel is what you say, that also promote and restore dignity today. And you've made a point, we probably should stop here for a second and talk about this before we go into the eight, that dignity is something to be restored and not given. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you're getting at there? Well, if we believe theologically that you can't uh, take away somebody's dignity, um, then, but but also the reality that people's dignity gets denied, stomped on, abused, um, and people can lose their sense of dignity, then the work really is helping people have that restored, or to help them to have their social relationships properly ordered, like the example in India um, that, that, that I used. Um, so that's the that's the restoration of, of dignity, and I think it applies in just almost every area of life, and it goes hand in hand with the gospel. By the way, I like to use an analogy when I give talks on this. I'll take a twenty dollar crisp twenty dollar or fifty dollar bill out of my wallet, and uh, I uh, talk about the the worth of it being objective and it's consistent in my community. But, of course, if I wrinkle it up, if I tear it a little bit, of course, it's lost its, its worth. Well, no, it hasn't, um, because an external authority has, has defined it to have a certain worth. So our dignity is divinely defined, uh, therefore unalterable, although it is stomped on and forgotten, and that's our work. Okay, well, let, let's take a look at this crinkled world in which we live and think about the application uh, of some of these. And like I said, these are kind of eight statements you have towards the end of the book that I think really help us to think through the applications. And these aren't the only eight, but these are the eight that you highlight. And it begins by saying, we must be examples of dignified living. And I'm assuming that part of that is aimed at um, – um, the less than dignified way in which some people um, conduct themselves, in some cases, to get quite a lot of attention and that kind of thing. In the, in the um, I'm going to coin a word here, the de-dignifying of our culture uh, to some degree uh, in the contrast that a life of dignity would represent. Well, our culture clearly is coarser and more vulgar and um, the media tools that we have means you get attention by being, um, by being ugly in, in, a, in a way. So that's, that's the culture. Specifically, I'm, I, I want to encourage Christians with this idea. We can't say that we stand for dignity in the gospel, pro-life or whatever, and, and, and then go out and behave in very undignified ways. 
or treat, it, treat other people with great disrespect. We are undermining our message, um, to put it positively, if we behave with dignity because of the gospel, that's going to make the message of God's defined worth and the gospel all the more compelling for people. So, uh, so step number one is to is to live out the character and the concern. This is actually part of the new man. If you look at the relational uh, characteristics that are a part of the new man: kindness, forgiveness, tolerance, uh, meekness, humility, those kinds of things. Uh, you see that a, dignita- a dignified life has a certain uh, a certain way of relating tied to it. Yeah, it's wonderful, mm-hmm. and uh, we need to be very intentional about it because we we can act in very undignified ways. Okay, the second one is you express it this way: we must show freedom to be uh, a better value than autonomy. And uh, my little take on this one is that um, what we're talking about here is a kind of responsible freedom. That the way freedom is used in our in our world sometimes, you know, freedom and autonomy are almost synonymous with each other. I have the right to choose to do whatever I want. You know, I might have some concern about whether it gets in your way or not, but I'm the, the value, one of the values in our culture is freedom. But we're talking about when we wed freedom to dignity, we're talking about a responsible kind of freedom, aren't we? Yes, um, and something far, far better than autonomy. Uh, uh, autonomy is the cheap substitute of modern societies for dignity. It's merely saying, you let me do whatever I want to do, and then you're showing me dignity. It's an empty concept. Um, It leads to chaos. So freedom is is different, because I I think that um, we do need to um, support each other in the freedom that we have to make our choices. I mean, my kids are in their 20s now. If, if I pretend as if um, somehow, um, well, my best chance at influencing them is to show them the respect that they they, they do have the freedom to make their own choices. But your, your point is well taken. It's not freedom in the sense of complete lack of constraint. As a matter of fact, one of the basic definitions of of, of freedom is that it gives constraints. It mm-hmm. is liberating with constraint, and that's what we need today. Yeah, I'm, I'm now I'm reminded of the passage in First Corinthians where Paul says, you know, I'm free to do all things, but not all things edify. Yeah. And so there's there's the recognition that with the I'm gonna have, with the freedom of freedom, there comes responsibility, uh, and and the and the exercise of that responsibility is important in the exercise of healthy freedom as as anything else. So, and I think you're right. The idea of autonomy here where everyone operates as a great independent actually reinforces a value that runs counter to the biblical emphasis. And that emphasis is, when I'm working autonomously, what I think about is what I want in my life. We become little demigods. Um, and we become control of our own destiny, and the arrow of attention points inward towards us. But the Bible is really full of reflection that says, no, my my arrow, my attention should be towards my neighbor. My attention should be towards my God. The arrow goes out as opposed to in. And, and so autonomy really works against against the development of the very um, character and attributes that God uh, wants us to have in our lives. Well, dignity is our only basis for human rights Mm -hmm. um, and justice. So I have in the book a a great little telling of um, the 
1948 drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, yes, uh, which starts with in the first sentence an assertion of inherent dignity. That, yep. That's a Judeo-Christian concept. And there was a diplomat by the name of uh, Dr. Charles Malik, Lebanese dip diplomat, um, had more honorary doctors than anybody else in the world, diplomat to the U.S. and to the U.N., and he was one of a handful of people that drew up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and that's why we have the idea, the biblical idea, of inherent dignity woven into that modern concept of human rights. Yeah, here's with, the, with autonomy, you don't have it. It's that's going. right. Yeah, here's the opening sentence of the document you're talking about. It, um, you, you cite it, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. And then dot dot dot. Boy, I wish I could read the rest of the sentence to see how that gets filled out. But but. Uh, boom, right at the starting point. And of course, uh, Ambassador Malik is a well-known uh, Christian who yes. uh, has spoken around the world, not just on, on the issues that he was involved in, but also about his own, own faith. And so um, yeah, this is an, you know, the concept of, of freedom, responsible freedom versus autonomy, I think, is a very important one. Well, let's move on to number three. I'm, I'm getting nervous now that we're going to not get through the list. It says, we must be champions of dignity for those whose dignity is being violated. Yeah, um, you know, I, I've been interviewing people, uh, Daryl, who uh, minister to uh, prostitutes and people who have been victims of human trafficking or people that have been discriminated against because of their age uh, or people in the criminal justice system who um, – uh, frequently, um, whatever, whatever human worth they retain because of all the problems in their life, it gets squashed because of the system. It's, that's a bureaucracy that's like a, that's like a meat grinder. So I, I think that um, it should be a joy to believers to proclaim the gospel at the same time that we're supporting anybody who's a victim of indignity of somebody else. Because we're, we're, we're showing the way in which um, God cares for those who, who sometimes the world uh, tends to forget. In fact, you open this section with a citation of Jeremiah 22.3. This is what the Lord says, Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And that's a summary of really several Old Testament texts that, that have that theme running through it. So the idea of honoring the dignity of, of our fellow human is, a, is an important biblical theme. And, and Daryl, I, I ask people, can you, can you, do you see somebody who is sold into prostitution as a child mm -hmm. and has lived in that bondage for years, can they get a sense of dignity back? And they say, absolutely. Absolutely. You come alongside of them, you minister to them in the name of Christ, you teach them, and it's amazing how many people actually can bounce back from what would seem to be a doomed existence. Mm. Uh, number four, we must, we must promote an ethic of work and productivity that supports the dignity of individuals. Uh, that sounds like that's almost a topic of a podcast all by itself, but uh, what are you getting at here? Well, work isn't about just the money in the bank. Mm -hmm. um, the, the paycheck that puts the food on the table is good, but, but work is meaningful and significant involvement in life, and, and that, that is that reminds us of our worth. 
On the other hand, for people that are unemployed and underemployed, we need to make sure that we support them when in circumstances not of their own choosing, they could feel as though they have zero worth, but that's not true either. And I would say that the, the Roman Catholics have been uh, ahead of Protestants on thinking about um, the theology of work and dignity on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, you cite a work from John Paul II in which he talks about what the dignity of work consists of. He teaches that man ought to imitate God as creator in working because man alone has the unique characteristic of likeness to God. Guess what? We're back in Genesis 1, and uh, and we're talking about the way in which God has has designed us to work, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and then subdue the creation. We're talking about how we manage and interact with one another, that the work that we do is actually part of the central call of why God created us in managing the garden and being good stewards and being managers in the proper sense of the term, not in the sense of control as it often is brought forward, but often with a sense of uh, uh, a sense of, of mutually encouraging one another to make the best kind of uh, existence and flourishing that we're capable of making. And that's a nice transition into number five. It says, we must reform bureaucracies that dehumanize. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I thought this was a curveball, and this is something that, that you've paid special attention to. So I'm interested in hearing how you fill that one out. Well, as we're talking here right now, Daryl, there are plenty of people out in office buildings and in work settings whose whose bosses are are treating them like gears in a machine, mm -hmm. and um, and any of us can do it. Even church leaders can do that. Is treating people as a means to an end. That's the problem with bureaucracy. We should turn around our thinking on that. And uh, if you're a manager, you should be helping your people be more more fulfilled at the end of the week and not used and discarded. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting because I just had a conversation with someone. We were in the we're in the process of hiring somebody, and we're talking about how our office works. And this person was interested in the in kind of the hierarchy, you know, who reports to whom and that kind of thing. And I was saying to them, uh, if you if if we take you on, and you become a part of what we do. You're going to find that we're committed to working together to accomplish a variety of goals and encourage one another and grow. And these lines, these demarcations that that you've been taught by the world to to recognize and respect are really less important to us in our work because our goal is as a team to figure out how to do what we're being asked to do in the best way possible. And wherever it comes from and whoever does it, whoever has responsibility for it, uh, that's that's what we're going to be affirming and dealing with. And so I think sometimes the hierarchy and rank thing gets in the way of, of our relating in, in ways that, that aren't healthy and that perhaps sometimes unintentionally um, demean people without being aware of it. All the time all the time and if it's severe it's dehumanizing if it's subtle it's still bad and we can we can do better than that if we open up our eyes yeah well i i, I think that this uh, as you said this is a an across the board type of thing that hits on a lot of areas and i think if you put the last two together the idea of on the one hand creating an ethic of work a productivity that supports the dignity of the individual and being careful about bureaucracy that dehumanizes you're doing things on two ends not only are you trying to be 
um, if I can say this, effective in the way you're promoting human well-being in the work that you do, but you also give the person who possibly feels displaced and disconnected and not a part of the system, you try and work to develop them in such a way that they can step in and become a part of, of contributing rather than feeling like they're always uh, drawing from the system or that the system doesn't care about them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, number six, uh, we must respect the elderly and support those who suffer from physical or mental illness or must cope with disabilities. It's a wide range of things, but the whole area of dealing with the dignity of people who, in one way or another, um, uh, have limitations. Um, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. I'm sure as a pastor, this is something, and I think of, you know, the myriads of hospital visits that a pastor does with people in, in these kinds of situations. Um, that as a pastor, the communication of caring and, and dignity and the affirmation of the person in the midst of going through hardship is really a pretty important ministry. It, it is, and it, it's amazing. I mean, after all these years, Daryl, I'm still surprised at what five minutes in a hospital room can do for somebody's spirits, mm-hmm. either, either a, uh, a pastor or somebody else. Um, I still have this idea, well, what can I do? I can't take that disease away. But my goodness, um, it, it tells people they're not alone, but it also tells people I'm worth something. Because disease, disability, aging, um, it doesn't objectively take away people's dignity, but it takes away their sense of worth or dignity. And, and we, we can turn that around, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Yeah, this um, we've got some time now, so let me ask this question because it just popped in my head as you were talking about this, and that is, where does our sense of, of worth and dignity come from? And, and really, what we're talking about is identity, and identity is obviously very important in a person's uh, psychological makeup. In fact, Paul pounds away at identity in establishing who the Christian is. And, I, and you've connected all this to the gospel, and I actually think uh, that's wise because part of what the gospel, part of the good news of the gospel is this restoration of who we are as God has made us to be. And, uh, you know, we tend, we tend sometimes to present the gospel as if it's this checklist of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, but there's actually something far more profound going on with the gospel, isn't it? Yeah, and, and most importantly, it's Christocentric. It's mm-hmm. centered in Christ. I, I think the answer to the question, how do we, you know, where do we root this sense of worth or dignity, it, it's, it's not the cheap thing from the 1970s, the self-worth movement, um, which was kind of wishful thinking. Let's just hope that, no, no, it's it's based in something objective, creation and redemption. Um, maybe this is a, a good summary of the whole subject, Daryl, is that worthwhileness or dignity in life is derived from two things, creation and redemption. Mm-hmm. Both of those great acts of God is the divine assertion of worth, which is what shapes our behaviors and our relationships and so on. But but it's ultimately seen in Christ, who ironically on the cross suffered the cruelest indignity that the world has ever seen, only to come out the other side and to be declared in the book of Revelation, worthy is the Lamb. Yeah, you know, and I think about the creation redemption issue that you raise, and of course it's, it's creation that gives us our inherent worth. 
and it's redemption that restores or seeks to restore uh, that which has been damaged in that worth by how we poorly, dysfunctionally, sinfully, whatever word you want to use, relate to one another, uh, and, and seeks to to uh, restore and rebuild that which gets damaged when we handle each other poorly. Mm-hmm. And yep. so uh, the gospel's right in the middle of, of the idea the only way you really ultimately restore dignity is by reconnecting people to the to their relationship with God, which is part of why they were created to begin with, and, and that is uh, to serve him. Number seven, we must build our bioethics on the foundation of human dignity. Yes, um, and I think we're a little more familiar with that. I mean, where evangelicals have talked about uh, dignity, it frequently has been in issues of um, abortion, pro-life, and so on, um, but also end-of-life issues, Daryl. Uh, I started writing this, and when I started writing this book, there were two states in the country that had physician-assisted death laws on the books. When I, when I finished it, there were five so we're moving quickly. Now, did you toward... write slow, or has it happened that fast? <laughs> no, no. Actually, in a, a very short span of time, yeah. all of a sudden, I think California and one or two others uh-huh. just fell into place. Um, and so we have this long-time uh, aphorism, uh, death with dignity. Um, and there's, you know, you can talk about, you know, hospice people help people to die with dignity. But dignity does not consist in having the power to act like God and to end your own life. So bioethics on the front end of life, on the back end of life, but my goodness, uh, organ donation, and I mean, it, it covers covers everything. And I'd refer people to experts like John Kilner, who have really given us a lot on that score. You know, what's interesting about that is we talked about how illness can take away dignity, and this is an example of that idea gone awry, because the idea is, is that if you're, you're dying, you, you, you've already lost your dignity in some sense, so we have the right to, to shorten that process in some way or, or, or something to that effect. And it's, it's a capitulation to autonomy in some ways at the same time. These are coming together. We've got one more. Uh, we must rise above all forms of prejudice. Easy, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Everyone you know, knows what to do. Everyone knows that we should do it, but getting there is a whole other matter. It, it uh, you know, I, I say the sentence after that, you know, easy to say, hard to do. I mean, it's something that should be said. Right. Um, and it's assumed. But, my goodness, um, this, is, this is our daily work. It is... It is to rise above that. I, I learned relatively recently the etymology of the word respect, respect. Mm-hmm. So the word for vision, to see, to respect means to take another look. Hmm. And if, if I mean, here's a practical little thing. Our first impressions of people, or our, our first impressions is usually where our biases and prejudices always come out. Mm-hmm. It's when you take a second look and you take a third look that you see peep other people in a deeper way and that's going to go a long way. But in a culture obsessed with ease and convenience, I think we're going to continually lean our prejudices because prejudice is simply the front end filter that is the lazy person's way of navigating life. 
Yeah, by pushing that away that he that for one reason or another he feels is different or something like that. It's uh, I, I often say in in work that I do that everyone understands that racial reconciliation is something we should be committed to, but figuring out how we get there is a whole nother matter. Yep. And yep. so, well, uh, Mel, our our time has um, literally run away from us, uh, and I thank you for the opportunity to think about and contemplate what dignity is all about, what human worth is all about, what it means to be made in the image of God, how that uh, works out practically, and we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I hope the small book will be a discussion starter for people. Get the discussion going, please. Yeah, it's a great idea. And we just thank you for being a part of the table and being with us. And you hope you'll be back with us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.